Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. The conversation of the morning, certainly for me, Dan Ives, Managing Director, Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Um a Penn State alum and a bad loss last week, Matt. Penn State lost to uh, Illinois at I home. I saw that, and I thought of Dan when I saw it. Nine overtimes. I mean, who plays nine overtimes? Anyway. All right, Dan, thanks so much for joining us here. We got Microsoft after the close. I want to get your thoughts as we go into that. But first, let's start with Tesla. I mean, Elon Musk is worth more than you know pretty much the rest of the stock market at this point here. This stock, to me is showing really no signs of concern about rising competition from the existing OEMs. How do you view that? Look, I think we're seeing the biggest transformation to the auto industry since 1950s, and Tesla's leading the way on EVs, and it's really been the one-two punch in terms of what we saw on deliveries last week, profitability, and Hertz is a tipping point. I think it's an inflection point in terms of what overall on EVs. There's a $5 trillion market. And I think this is just sort of the middle innings of the street further appreciating this Tesla and EV story. Yeah, I mean, what an amazing story. Ordering 100,000 Model 3s at, uh, Dan, as close as I can figure, this is basically list price that they're paying. Well, that's really what sticks out. You know, normally you'll see discount 10, 15, 20%. It's list price because right now Tesla it's Tesla's world. Everyone else is paying rent in EVs <laughs> because demand's outstripping supply by about 10%. You know, now you start the trajectory out where this could go, along with supply coming on with Berlin and Austin. Million today, this could be two million a year. And I think that's what you're starting to see in the stock. Even, look, the haters will hate, continue to hate. But right now, as you're seeing this, it's hard for investors to dismiss this green tidal wave playing out. And Dan, how do you think this EV market will shake out in 10 years' time? Well, when assuming everybody who's in anybody will have a full complement, a full lineup of electric vehicles, where do you think Tesla's position will be? Will they kind of be the, the Porsche of the auto industry? Can, can, or I just they... point, can I just point out, speaking of Porsche, the owner of Porsche and Lamborghini, Ducati, Bentley, Bugatti, um, Volkswagen, and Audi, they have a, a market cap of $150 million. Billion. Tesla's billion dollars. Yeah. Tesla's worth more than a trillion. How does that make any sense? Well, look, it's a great point. I, like, I've never viewed, and I know we've talked about the last decade, Tesla is an automotive company. I view them as this disruptive technology player. But I do think, to, to Paul's question, VW, Ford, GM, and, and others is part of this $5 trillion you know, EV transformation, it's, it's not a zero-sum game. They're all going to benefit. I mean, you put it all in perspective. You have 3 million EVs in the road globally. You have 100 million cars. I believe that's 50 million at the end of the decade. And Tesla's going to have a significant market share of that. But, it, but others are going to benefit as well. And that's why this is something, you look at the re-rating that's going to start to happen. It's already happened. GM. Ford, VW, because more and more investors are going to value that disruptive piece, the EV piece, like a technology piece, not traditional automotive. 
All right, let's switch gears here to our good friends from uh, Seattle, Washington. Um, <laughs> Microsoft, all-time high point. Put up that max chart on your Bloomberg terminal, GP Go. Uh, just extraordinary. Uh, what do you expect after the close from Microsoft, Dan? I think another World Series performance by, by Nadella and Microsoft. I mean, it continues to have the golden touch on cloud. It's cloud arms is playing out, but Microsoft is gaining more and more share. This is just the growth story still underestimated by the street. So we have a 375 price target. I think it's just another sort of beat and raise special uh, coming out of Redmond. And you see that uh, for the other tech companies as well for Alphabet? Oh, yeah. I think this is going to be just a headline week for tech across the board. Social media week link is what we're seeing on the Apple privacy. I think Apple, you're going to see robust coming out, despite chip shortages and right now demand outstripping supply by about 10 million iPhones. Alphabet as well in digital advertising. I believe this is sort of the, the fuel in the tank now to get NASDAQ to our year on target of 16,000. You know, it, it's funny, Dan, when I look at Microsoft, I look at this stock and, you know, I'm. I've been in this market long enough to really kind of follow the Microsoft story from day one when there's a, you know, a, a lost decade or so for this company. And I feel like such an Adela doesn't get the due that he has deserved, you know, even like a maybe not an Elon Musk, but a Tim Cook or some of the other guys from Silicon Valley. The job he's done in repositioning this company, I think, is just an extraordinary story. How do you think about it? Nadella is in the Hall of Fame. I mean, for any company, what you see in the last 15 years play out. What he's done in Microsoft, transforming them into a cloud behemoth. Go back to when he took over, stocks 30, 40. Many thought that was really just going to be another mature company playing out. I believe he is up there with the likes of Bezos, Cook, and others in terms of what he's done. Nonetheless, when you look at the, I mean, I look at comp charts all the time, um, which is an automatically a, a five-year chart on the Bloomberg terminal. And although Microsoft has done better than almost all of the mega tech peers, in fact, Microsoft over the last five years has done better than Google, Apple, Netflix, Amazon, um, but it just pales in comparison to Tesla. Like this chart is unbelievable to look at. Look, it is, I mean, we're seeing, you know, what, what what's really some of the most transformational growth that, that, that really have ever been witnessed in the last 30 years. And I think you put these stories on a pedestal, Tesla, Amazon, Netflix, of course, Apple and others. And I think what you're seeing now is that more investors are starting to recognize the transformation that's happening. And you're seeing the stock continue to re-rate as this all takes place. All right. It's it's a pretty incredible story, to say the least. And Dan uh, has been at the forefront of this without performs on Super all Bowl. these stocks. Super Bowl. It's been great. Yeah. It, it's, it's been amazing. And I'm sorry about Penn State. I really was thinking of, of Dan. <laughs> now as, we have to go to Columbus this weekend. Oh, boy. <laughs> Ooh. The Ohio, Ohio State, State University. University. Dan Ives there from Wedbush Morgan. Always great to get a little bit of time with him this is Bloomberg. All right, let's bring in David Harden right now. He's the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Summit Global Investments. They have $1.8 billion 
in assets under management. And uh, Dave, I'll just ask you what I've been asking everybody today. Um, we're at an all-time high on the S&P 500, even though we face um, so many headwinds and there are so many question marks out there as well. Um, what do you make of 4,600 on the S&P 500? It's pretty amazing. And uh, the market's always had to climb a wall of worry. And so definitely I continue to think this is going to be choppy, but I do think it's higher ahead. And hey, thanks for having me on your show today. But that's what, I'm, that's what I see. All right, David. You know, as Matt was just suggesting here, you know, with this market at the all-time high, a lot of valuation concerns in there. <clears throat> that's a big part of that wall of worry. But we've had really good earnings this third quarter period. Do you think earnings are strong enough to support the valuation here? Well, clearly. And, and the earnings have been crushing it. And I think that the earnings revisions will continue. I think that the earnings will continue to do well. Yes, growth is slowing, and that absolutely inflation is out there. And I think that's flattening the yield curve, and I see the 10-year going to 2%. But I don't see the bubble bursting. Until the Fed becomes negative towards the market, I think this thing continues. And so choppy trading, but you know, for me, it's still equities ahead. And, and cautiously optimistic here, but equities still is the place to play. What is, what is the Fed going to do? I mean, especially now that so many people are talking about the possibility of Chinese growth slowing, maybe less than 5% uh, next year. It seems to me difficult for the Fed to raise rates in that kind of situation. Uh, um, and, and it is. And it's going to be difficult. And I think that there's going to, you know, it doesn't mean that we're going to be straight up forever. The market has cycles. And people have to understand, I think, that risk management needs to become more central in their investing mindset. And that's one of the things we do at SGI is that, you know, we focus on managing risk and providing the protection that the clients deserve when they're in those situations in the future. Because let's face it, the more risk management you put into your portfolio, the more that it will perform how you designed it to do. So, you know, there is going to become a time of reckoning, and it's, going to, and it's going to be very important to investors that they're positioned correctly. Many times we just talk about the next trade and not about the investment long term, and those are two different conversations. David, you've got to sell on Southwest Airlines. Is that a, a call on the sector or a call on the fact that Southwest cancels flights every day? It's more, well, the latter, right? I think that if you're in this sector, um, and, and there's still business travel is still extremely weak. We know that, right? And we know that um, with the pandemic and with Delta, even though maybe the numbers look better than they did last week, so to speak, are, are we coming out of this? Uh, we get scares all the time, but people are getting their third shot now. So I, th I think the sector, I'm, I'm not negative on the sector. But Southwest has continued to have problems. It's had problems in their C-suite. We've seen that this year with the CEO changes and different things. They've had problems now with their computer systems. And what you want to understand with those thousands of cancellations is the next time people go to book a flight, do they think in their mind, I don't, I don't know, maybe Southwest is going to cancel me. Once that happens, they book somewhere else. You lose revenue. So the $75 million one-time charge, great. But what about the next flight? That's what I'm worried about with Southwest. I see a lot of downside volatility here or risk. And so from my standpoint, short-term struggles. If you're going to be in this sector, avoid Southwest. 
You do like ExxonMobil, and this is a company that I think a lot of people with ESG concerns would avoid. What draws you to the big oil? You know, it's interesting. We've been doing ESG before ESG was sexy, Matt, and, and, and before it was even called that. And so sometimes ESG is not always about not uh, it, it's it's more about doing what you do really well and avoiding damage, right? So if Exxon was responsible for the oil spill that was off the Huntington Beach coach, coast last uh, two or three weeks ago, that'd be really bad. But they're not, and they're doing really well, and you're getting a really well-paid yield here. Um, you're getting very manageable risk, a really good management team, and our call is that oil stays above where it's at or stays where it's at right now for a longer period of time. And let's face it, at this price of crude, Exxon is a really good opportunity. And it's a good value play, too. So from my standpoint, energy right now is a really good play. And I would be increasing my energy exposure if I was a client. Dave, you're in Salt Lake City, is that right? Uh, correct. We're All based right. out of Salt Lake with offices in Boise, San Francisco, and Tampa. Let's get to the important stuff. How's the snow going to be in Utah this year? Well, after a foot of snow last night, nice. it continued snowing this morning, and a storm every about three days, our resorts are opening up sooner than they've ever done uh, before. And so it, I think it's going to be a fantastic ski season. But, hey, uh, I love to ski. So. I'm book, I've already booked two trips out there, so it you know better keep dumping. After missing skiing for a couple of years, it's going to be great to get oh, back. Yeah. And, Boy, I, we always make plans to do something different, crazy Montana or this or that. Then at the end of the day, we say, screw it. It's flying to Salt Lake. We've got world-class resorts, you know, minutes away. And it's just Park City. Much easier. Yeah, I know. Awesome, awesome. All right, Dave Harden, CEO and Chief Investment Officer, Summit Global Investments, uh, and our Utah ski uh, man on the ground. We appreciate that. Markets, again, uh, trading higher. Again, good earnings. We had some good earnings. Uh, we have more big tech after the close today. Uh, but as Dave said, earnings doing their part here for this market. Let's bring in Fiona Sincata right now, Senior Financial Markets Analyst at City Index. And Fiona, as a journalist, we have to try and be skeptical. It's not hard right now. Uh, supply chain, I don't think crisis is a is a too strong a word to use. Labor shortages, inflation scares. And yet, we're trading at basically 4,600 right now on the S&P 500. That's got to be a gain of like 22, 23%. Uh, year to date. What's going on? That's right. I mean, it does feel that there's very much this sort of optimism that's coming out of earnings at the moment, which is actually just lifting the stock. And it's very much overshadowing those concerns that we saw heading into uh, earnings season. So there's inflation concerns, jitters surrounding sort of the labor market, the, the sort of energy crisis and supply chain bottlenecks. All that seems to be just being overshadowed right now by some, some nice, strong earnings that we've seen. Um, I think we're not seeing sort of the reflection yet of those sort of um, concerns being really shown through in the earnings. And that's something that's helping um, sort of investors' optimism. Um, just for example, the, as, as far as sort of supply chain bottlenecks are concerned, I think that's very much we can see that sort of starting to come through in the following quarter. And I think that's just what we're seeing at the moment is the markets are at that sort of happy point 
by things. Although we know there are a lot of headwinds coming and there are problems surrounding, the numbers just aren't quite showing that yet. And also we've got sort of consumer confidence data came through today much better than expected as well. And so that really helped lift up the mood, um, adding to, to that upbeat. We were expecting sort of consumer confidence to come in much lower and to fall for a fourth straight month. It's actually had a surprise jump. So that does bode well, in fact, for um, the, the, the economic pickup picture for the start of the fourth quarter. Um, if you know, we have some big tech uh, names reporting earnings after the close. Microsoft, Alphabet, which I refer to as Google. I'm old school. Uh, how are you thinking about the tech space uh, right here? Yeah, so we've had some good numbers, haven't we? I mean, I think we've had, as far as the Facebook was concerned, we, that was, as far as I'm concerned, that came better than we were expecting in the sense that we saw that at beat on the earnings per share. Revenue was a little bit on the disappointing side, but that perhaps isn't so surprising given what we know about what's happening with Apple and the uh, the privacy policy change there. And as far as what we're expecting from, from Microsoft and Alphabet, I mean, if we think about how these stocks have rallied over the past six months, I mean, Microsoft's up 30% over the past six months, Alphabet's up 57% year to date. So there are pretty high expectations for these stocks. But I mean, with Alphabet, for example, not only should Google prove to be resilient as far as sort of advertising revenue is concerned, we do see it sort of, you know, picking up as well from that gain in tr- the pickup in travel sector and travel searches, which is going to help it along as well. Microsoft very much been involved with that remote working company, sort of increasing the spend on cloud and on digital transformations because of that remote working. So this is all very supportive um, of the tech sector. I think we've still got, you know, we've seen these stocks trading at record highs and they have eased off some of them. I think they could potentially push higher if we get some more solid numbers. In terms of the, uh, in terms of next year, what are you expecting? Because the consumer confidence numbers, although they were good just now, have been lacking of late. And I've heard more and more people use the word recession. I think recession is quite a strong word sense uh, still. I think we, we will see a sort of a, a very much a change as we going into next year. Obviously, let's not forget this year has been very much about recovery, rebounding. We've had the support from the fiscal support. We've also had monetary policy support. And those taps are going to be turned off. We know sort of as far as the Fed is concerned, we'll be looking for the, for the tapering in them, those bond purchases to start happening you know, potentially as soon as November, December. And, and then as far as interest rates being hiked. That's something that could really start to sort of slow um, the growth that we're seeing. I do think recession is a very strong word. I think there are concerns about as, as far as growth is going to flow, particularly as we see those the, the, the supply chain bottlenecks, the energy crisis sort of moves through the market and the market sort of come to terms with those and move past them. Um, but I think the as, as far as actual growth is concerned, I do think we'll continue to see growth, but just at a much slower pace. And obviously, any rise in interest rates to bring sort of inflation back under control will just sort of stem that growth a little bit more. You mentioned uh, energy. Just real quickly, I'm seeing WTI just about $85 a barrel. Have I missed the energy stock trade or the energy commodity trade? No, I think there is more to go here. I mean, again, energy and, and as far as oil is concerned, it's had a very impressive run. Uh, I mean, we, we know sort of 
coal prices and, and gas prices have absolutely surged. And WTI has also had a very good run-up. We've just seen the, the gas and the coal prices are starting to edge down after we've had that intervention from China, particularly um, in the coal market. But I think as far as oil is concerned, we know that demand is still very strong, particularly yep. in the U.S., um, and then we've also got sort of, you know, very tight supplies from OPEC. They're not looking to sort of move so far um, beyond those 400,000 extra barrels right. today that they agreed back in July. So, so I think there is further to run there. All right, Fiona, thank you so much for joining us. As always, Fiona Sincata, Senior Financial Markets Analyst for City Index, giving her her thoughts on these markets. Again, earnings after the close, big tech. This is Bloomberg. Now, we got U.S. new home sales numbers. Um, uh, sales of new homes in America increased in September to the highest level in six months, underscoring what we already knew was pretty solid underlying demand. Brad Dillman joins us right now, chief economist at Cortland out of Atlanta. And uh, Brad, what do you think? I mean, we knew it was going to be hot, but I'm not sure everybody knew that purchases of single-family homes would grow 14% to an annualized 800000 Yeah, it was definitely higher than expectations. Uh, the figure I had had in front of me uh, for the expectations figure was 720000 on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis. So it certainly uh, beat what most models had been predicting. You know, one of the things as we think about the housing market, Brad, it's been so consistently strong through this entire economic tumult from the pandemic. But when we think about the supply of housing in the U.S., it hasn't been necessarily where it's needed. I'm thinking the entry-level home. We haven't seen new home construction really address that market. Uh, is that changing at all? Uh, no, unfortunately, it's not. And if we look at the, the price movement and, and what's happened on, on the new home sales side, for example, the median price came in at 409000 um, That's up from about 328000 pre-COVID. And, and just to put it in a broader reference 20 years ago the price for a new home would have been about 168,000 so that's a two and a half times increase wow. so we are definitely seeing those prices continue to tick up now i would make the argument that that's in part due to financial conditions and i think part of the reason that housing has been so strong since the onset of the pandemic has been what's gone on and with mortgage rates which is that they'd come down so much and remain quite low um, I've talked in the past about the 10-year Treasury rate being negative in, in real terms once we factor in inflation, uh, and an aspect of this passing through to mortgage rates with their being really low as well. But when we look to new home sales, too, you know, we had this huge rebound in the wake of the pandemic that it then cooled a bit. And now I'd say when I look at this figure, I'd say it's it's really resuming its pre-COVID trend. So maybe we'll see a continuation of that going forward. What is – I mean, it's a very regional uh, market, right? The United States is gigantic. And, um, you know, I, I realize that even more having lived in Europe for for years now. Where do you see the strongest growth and where do you see a little bit more normalcy? So month to month, the, the big gains have been in the northeast and the south. Um, I wouldn't really say that we're, you know, the other parts of the country. And, and again, we're talking large regions that, you know, are in a bad spot. Uh, we got to remember when we look at the new home sales figure, while it was strong, it actually is still down uh, year to year. And so as I mentioned earlier, you know, in the latter half of 2020, we really saw some strong figures that cooled off a lot in the first part of this year. And we're now seeing them swing back up again uh, and resume that pre-COVID trend. Brad, you know, I'm still at a loss. I'm going to follow up on my prior question. 
why isn't the market, the housing market more efficient, i.e. there's demand at the low end and there's, where's the supply to meet that demand? I mean, I know the margins on the McMansion are better for builders, but at some point, the pricing dynamic has to drive supply of lower end housing. Yeah, and I'd argue to a degree we have seen, of course, over the last 10 years, we've seen supply pick up. It just hasn't kept pace with our population growth. So there's estimates out there related to our total deficit of housing. The the estimate that I have is 1.1 million housing units. That's to say that we would need to build 1.1 million housing units instantaneously just to satisfy what we would need right now. That's nothing to do with sort of a, a go-forward basis, just to clean things right now. And so when I look at the last 10 years, I see the difficulty for home builders really being in, in what I would call artificial home price appreciation that came about from the kind of policies that we set about on to stimulate housing coming out of the Great Recession. If you raise home prices to the point that people can't afford them, there's really not a big market into which home builders can build and deliver supply. And that's precisely what's happened at the low end, even though the situation has to a degree uh, uh, been solved over the last 10 years as our, as our total amount of housing completions has increased. We haven't, have we seen um, rentals keep up then with the demand for housing? I mean, do uh, people who can't afford to buy houses, do they end up renting places instead? How's it working out? Yes. So there's been some huge strength in the multifamily space and in the single family rental space. And in fact, Q3 annual rent growth in multifamily came in much stronger than expectations. Um, and the occupancy rates in multifamily remain very tight. Now, what's interesting is during the pandemic, when we saw lots of people move out to buy homes, we did see that these you know, vacant rental units were backfilled by something that we've covered in surveys as first-time renters. So that's something we can see with, uh, call it your younger millennials at this point or older Gen Zers who are able to move out and form their own household as, as those units become vacant. Um, but where that's going to be heading going forward, you know, if, we, if we do see mortgage rates tick up in the wake of a taper and we see activity in the for-purchase space start to slow down a little bit, maybe in, in several months' time, we may see higher renewal rates again in multifamily, something that's already been relatively consistent over the last, call it six months or so. That's just an increase in renewal rates and rentals. Interesting stuff. We can always talk uh, real estate. Lots going on out there. Brad Dillman, chief economist for Cortland, joining us on the phone there. And uh, again, the real estate market remains very, very strong. We saw that in the in the eco numbers today uh, coming out of D.C. Um, so good time to be a seller of a house. Not so sure enough already a buyer. Uh. But Matt's going to give us some on the ground real world feedback starting next week. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.